up on episode five of the ELB podcast. What is the state of Latino voting rights in the state of Texas and beyond? What's happening with the never-ending redistricting litigation in San Antonio, raising questions about whether Texas discriminated against Latino voters and others? Has the demise of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, thanks to the Supreme Court's 2013 decision in Shelby County v. Holder, hurt minority voters? We will talk with Nina Perales, Vice President of Litigation for the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, one of the country's leading voting rights lawyers. Listen for Episode 5 of the ELB Podcast. Welcome to Episode 5 of the ELB Podcast. I'm Rick Hassan of the UC Irvine School of Law and the Election Law Blog. I am joined today by Nina Perales, the Vice President of Litigation for MALDEF, the Mexican-American Legal Defense and Education Fund, and one of the country's leading litigators in the field of voting rights. Among other cases she's handled, she argued the Lulac v. Perry case involving redistricting in Texas that went to the Supreme Court, and she's currently involved in litigation over Texas's current round of redistricting pending before a three-judge court in San Antonio. Well, thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. Uh, so uh, I thought we could start by talking about the Texas redistricting case, the never-ending Texas redistricting case. Um, just for those uh, listeners who are not familiar with what's going on, could you just give a quick overview of where we are, what's at stake, what, what, what's still to be decided? Well, quite a bit remains to be decided in the Texas redistricting. Uh, this case began in 2011 with a challenge to the Texas redistricting plans for State House, Senate, and Congress. The Senate issues have been resolved, but the issues with respect to our congressional redistricting plan and our House redistricting plan are not yet resolved. Um, it's obviously been a while since the case started, and so initially the years, court... Years, right. Yes, it's been years, and uh, the court put in place a temporary... A set of redistricting plans, uh, just for now, interim plans. And the state of Texas has subsequently adopted those plans. But the, the overall challenge still remains, and the court has had us go to trial twice, and the most recent one was in the summer of 2014. And right now we're really waiting for our court, which is made up of three judges, to come out with a decision about the ultimate legality of what the legislature did. And from there, looking forward, uh, we may see a, a change yet again in our redistricting lines. And what's the, the nature of the legal challenge, at least that you're bringing? I know there are not a number of parties, and not everybody's bringing all of the same claims, but what, what are your complaints about, the, the remaining complaints about the district? Well, just from our perspective, and you're right, there's lots of different people challenging the plans. We have Democrats challenging the plans. We have African-American groups challenging the plans. But uh, my organization, MALDEF, represents uh, a coalition of Latino organizations that are challenging the plans as discriminatory against Latino voters. And uh, the coalition itself came together for the 2011 redistricting process. The history in Texas is not great for redistricting in Latinos. Since Texas has been regularly redistricting every decade, 
one or more redistricting plans have been struck down or blocked as discriminatory against Latinos. So you can imagine that this coalition came together for the purpose of defending Latino interests in the redistricting process in the legislature, and then later when uh, it became clear that the plans discriminated, this coalition took the issue to court. And the challenge is simply that uh, Latinos are, did not receive fair representation in the State House plan and in the Congressional plan, uh, and that there should have been more seats uh, created that give Latino, the Latino voters the opportunity to elect their preferred candidates. And how has the Supreme Court's decision in 2013 in Shelby County, which eliminated the preclearance requirement, which would have made Texas, and at least initially did make Texas, have to get federal approval for its redistricting, how has that impacted uh, where we are now uh, with, uh, with, these, uh, with these rights? Would there still have been a, a big issue? Uh, is it about getting more representation, or is it about uh, trying to stop the backsliding? Well, as you correctly point out, Section 5 was always about backsliding. In our um, redistricting plans of 2011, uh, we had arguments that both the House plan for the State House and the Congressional plan represented backsliding. Um, those plans were blocked under Section 5 before the Shelby decision. Uh, and never would have gone into effect or had any kind of legal um, effectiveness, except that when the Supreme Court came down with the Shelby decision and Section 5 no longer applied to, to Texas, uh, the plans would have moved forward, if not for the fact that we had already gone to court uh, and gotten an injunction. Mm -hmm. So we were lucky that we initially blocked the plans under Section 5 when we still had Section 5. And now that we don't have Section 5, we're using other parts of the Voting Rights Act, such as Section 2, uh, and also claiming that there's a constitutional violation. And hopefully, uh, those will be sufficient. And I guess it's been over a year since the end of the second trial, mm -hmm. uh, where reaching the midpoint of the redistricting cycle, the middle of the decade. Um, do you have any sense about, first, you know, why such a long delay? And second, <clears throat> is there anything that could be done in the future to make these challenges move more quickly? Well, it's all up to our three-judge panel. Uh, they are going to take the time that they need to write the opinions. It may be that the year-long delay is the result of the judges um, writing opinions where they don't completely agree with each other. Mm -hmm. I'm sure we'll get some kind of judgment, but we may end up with two or three different opinions. That's part of what has caused the delay, is that they may be writing and responding to each other. Uh, this case will go directly on appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. So I know our three judges want to write careful opinions. And then finally, we had an intervening decision in the U.S. Supreme Court in the Alabama Redistricting Commission case that caused our court to ask us for some additional briefing on the impact of the Alabama case on our case. And we completed that briefing in the spring of 2015. And I'm sure that our three-judge panel is incorporating some of that as well. Have you taken the position that these districts violate the racial gerrymandering cause of action that is described in the Alabama case? We do take the position that some of the districts are racially gerrymandered, but not 
under the same theory that is advanced in the uh, that was advanced oh, in the Alabama case. Yeah. And uh, in terms of for the thinking about for the future, in terms of streamlining, do you think that is this a good procedure for addressing these claims, or would you rather them go to a, maybe a single judge with an appeal to the Fifth Circuit to the Supreme Court discretionary, or do you think this is a good way of protecting voting rights? That's a really hard question. I don't spend a lot of time thinking about better ways to do it. Uh, mostly I just spend my time trying to figure out how to do this. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, there's a... I think it would take longer if we tried the case to a single judge and then went to the Court of Appeals and then went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And given that this case has already taken over four years, or about four years at this point. Uh, longer is not better. Uh, we had, you know, we had some things happen in this litigation which made it longer. So, for example, Shelby coming down forced our court to sort of have to go longer and have to deal with other claims than it, it might have otherwise. I don't know how to streamline this process, but I'm not sure that uh, going to the Court of Appeals would make it easier mm -hmm. or, or more efficient. Do you think it's fair to have a three-judge district court? Is it hard to try uh, a case involving facts to three judges instead of one? Our three judges have been magnificent in the trial. Uh, we uh, watch them uh, cooperating with each other on the bench uh, to decide on uh, things like scheduling and uh, objections and how to deal with evidence. Uh, so they have really been fantastic in their collaboration with each other. Uh, it is very interesting when you have three faces reacting to the evidence that you're presenting. You can uh, sense sometimes that what you're doing may seem more persuasive to one judge versus the two others. Now, uh, I know you're not involved in the current uh, voter ID case. Uh, that's also involves the state of Texas. But in that case, the single district judge, it was tried to a single district judge, found that Texas had engaged in intentional racial discrimination in passing this voter ID law. Case went up to the Fifth Circuit. The Fifth Circuit panel, an opinion by Judge Haynes, uh, said that had to be reconsidered under new standards for uh, how you measure intentional racial discrimination. And uh, now there's a potential that that case will go on bonk and, and that ruling will disappear. Will there be any impact of the discussion of intentional racial discrimination, either by the district court or by the Fifth Circuit, on this case? Is that an issue in the, in the uh, redistricting case as well? Yes, I do believe that what the Fifth Circuit has said about racial intent, and especially how you find it in the legislative process, will bear on the Texas redistricting case because we are in some ways talking about a, a very similar um, set of players in mm -hmm. terms of legislators and the Fifth Circuit decision in the voter ID case talked about what sorts of evidence coming from different legislators counts more or less in the intent evaluation and we do have some of that in the Texas redistricting case Probably the biggest difference with Texas redistricting is that we have a lot of testimony from the legislators themselves about what they intended, and we also have a lot of emails. Those are not present in the record in voter ID, 
because by the time voter ID went into discovery, the state was largely claiming legislative privilege. So you don't have the emails, you don't have the state of mind testimony of the legislators in voter ID like you do in Texas redistricting. And as a result, I think the Texas redistricting record has a lot more direct evidence of intent than uh, voter ID, which is going to rely more on circumstantial evidence. Um, looking ahead to 2020, we're not that far away from the next round of redistricting. We are not that far away. Kind of scary. Uh, I guess it's full employment for election lawyers, so that's one uh, bright side of things. Um, do you foresee the process being fundamentally different with the absence of pre assuming that there's no preclearance put back in place, which is at issue uh, in, in, in these cases, but if preclearance is not put back in place or put back in place in time for that round, do you foresee bigger challenges to preserving uh, minority voting rights uh, in Texas in the next round? I do foresee difficulties if Texas is not brought back in under federal supervision under Section 5. And as you noted, we're asking for that both in the Texas redistricting case right now and the lawyers in Texas voter ID are also asking for Texas to be brought back in under Section 5. But without Section 5, um, I think it will be much more difficult for us to hold the line. So for example, in this round, in 2011 redistricting, the state of Texas created fewer House districts in which Latinos could elect their candidate of choice when compared to the previous decade. They managed, despite very strong Hispanic population growth, to subtract the number of opportunity districts that we had. And that was something that we could then take uh, under the Section 5 standards and, and have blocked. Without that, uh, we are thrown into the realm of Section 2, which is much more time-consuming and much more expensive for the community groups and the lawyers who are working on these cases. And we have to hire lots of expert witnesses to show that the, a more fair map could have been drawn and should have been drawn. So yes, I do see it as a problem that we lost Section 5. We know that locally, um, and Maldif is involved right now in suing a, a city in Texas that right after the Shelby decision, decided to reorganize its election system in a way to make it harder for Latinos to elect their candidate choice. And which so would is that have the been, Pasadena case? Yes, that's Pasadena. It would have been blocked under Section 5, and the, the mayor himself said, I couldn't have done this if we had Section 5, but I'm going to do it now because Shelby has come down and, and it's an opportunity for Pasadena to take those steps. Uh, so we do know in Texas uh, we have seen some backsliding uh, and the need to litigate that, and I would expect that we could see that again in the next round of redistricting statewide. If there's not a preclearance regime put back in if place. If there is not preclearance brought back. Um, and finally, uh, I just want to uh, ask you to reflect a little bit on, we've just passed last month the 50th anniversary of the Voting Rights Act, and I guess it's 40 years since Texas was brought into coverage in the 1975 amendments. Um, how do you uh, see the state of voting rights for Latinos today in the United States? Well, Latinos have certainly made tremendous progress from the time that the 65 Act went into effect and had the nationwide ban on discrimination. Latinos benefited from that very first day, not just in specific provisions uh, such as those that uh, removed discrimination against Puerto Rican voters in New York which is known as the American Flags Provision in the 65 Act, 
part of Arizona was brought in under preclearance in the 65 Act. And then in, in the 75 extension, we had a, a greater coverage of Section 5 throughout the Southwest. Latinos have been making strong and steady progress under the Voting Rights Act. A lot of discrimination has been defeated, but discrimination is also very persistent and adapts and take, takes new forms. And so we continue to fight, as you can see in the Texas voter ID litigation and the Texas redistricting litigation, uh, we continue to fight for just that fair opportunity to participate in elections. And we've also seen newer, newer mechanisms of discrimination, such as in Arizona, with the, making voter registration much more difficult under the claim that uh, registration has to make sure there are not U.S. citizens. So you see this explicit invocation of non-citizen voting, which Arizona could never prove, and then an accompanying policy to make voter registration more difficult in a state where Latino population is growing. Uh, we, we have our work cut out for us um, addressing both traditional or old-fashioned forms of voting discrimination, as well as the new and adaptive forms. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. The ELB podcast is supported by the University of California at Irvine School of Law, but I am solely responsible for its content. The technical producer of the ELB podcast is Jared Hassenklein. The theme music is the composition Jazz by the band Beat FN, used under Creative Commons license. Join us next time for the ELB podcast. I'm Rick Hassen. Goodbye.